You're listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 28. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. Welcome, everyone, to this episode. Usually, the purpose behind my podcast is a little bit more practical, more nuts and bolts, um, giving you tips and strategies for navigating this complex world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. However... I decided to shift gears a little bit and turn it up. Um, I invited Stephen Murins, who practices immigration law in uh, Vancouver, to join me to talk about something that's a lot more legal. And that is the whole concept of reviewing an officer's decision. So there is uh, an interesting court case that is working its way through the system that is now getting ready to head to the Supreme Court of Canada. And it is the decision of Canada, Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, versus TRAN. So we refer to it as TRAN. So there was a recent decision by the Federal Court of Appeal, which is kind of crazy and wonky and has some pretty huge ramifications for uh, this whole concept of, um, you know, whether or not you can challenge an officer's decision and uh, and when you can win and when you when you're not going to win. And uh, that's basically the the context of this podcast. And so because I don't practice in that area, I brought Stephen Murins on and Stephen is just just a super smart guy, really intelligent, an excellent lawyer and uh, a significant contributor to the Canadian Bar Association and is really practicing law the way it should be practiced. He's uh, working hard to help generally advance and elevate the immigration bar. He has a fantastic blog, which I will put, um, called Murins on Immigration, which I will put a link to within the show notes. And so I had a chance to visit with Stephen and to discuss some of the implications of this case. And even before diving into the case, we talked about how this whole system works. You know, we talked about how the courts have the ability to overturn an officer's decision and on what basis they can do it and when they're not able to do it. And I think some of you out there who have submitted immigration applications and even those lawyers who don't do a lot of federal court work would be very surprised to know the standard that an officer is held to when their decisions are being ref- uh, reviewed by a court, in particular, the federal court of Canada. So welcome to this podcast. I think you're really going to like it. Like I said, Stephen is just an excellent guy, just a, a fantastic person and uh, does just a bang up job of, of laying out in terms that we all can understand this crazy area of, uh, of appeal work and uh, judicially reviewing officers' decisions and, and all of these areas that I personally don't practice in, but I know a lot of you do. So I hope you like it. Let's jump into the interview with my friend, Stephen Murins. All right, I'm here with uh, Stephen Murins. Stephen practices immigration law in the wonderful city of Vancouver, British Columbia. He is a partner with the law firm of Larley Rosenberg. And um, you guys pretty much practice all kinds of immigration, don't you? Yeah, we do every type of immigration here from... uh we don't do too many initial refugee claims, but everything from refugee appeals to corporate managing, we call them immigration portfolios for corporations. Hmm. So in- individuals, business, and I see here as well that you have a fairly extensive experience in family-based immigration. And one of the reasons I, why I wanted to pull you on the podcast today was a fairly active practice assisting, uh, assisting people who've been denied entry to Canada or um, who've had visa applications refused. Yeah, that's about, it's increased in the last year from about 20% to 40% of my practice. Wow. 
and you've had a chance to appear uh, before the Immigration and Refugee Board and had some federal court exposure as well. Yeah. Very cool. I do uh, federal court more than the uh, Immigration and Refugee Board. One of the other partners here, Peter Larley, is before the IRB about, oh, I'd say twice a week. Really? Wow. That's, that's amazing. You can't help but uh, get a pretty good feel of <laughs> what the decision's going to be before you even go in when you're, when you're appearing that much. Yeah, no, it, uh, and it helps for preparing applications to know the type of mistakes that can often cause refusals or even not mistakes, but things done properly that can still cause some confusion. You bet. And you think, too, well, one of the topics that we're going to be covering is um, just this whole process of reviewing these negative decisions and why it's so darn complicated. And uh, I think one thing our listeners will see here as we get into it a little bit more is the fact that sometimes it's not so much the case you have or, you know, the the particular facts of your client as it is who you're appearing before or who is actually adjudicating the application that you filed. <laughs> and so uh, there's yeah, so much it's discretion. Like, I think a lot of People wish it was otherwise, but unfortunately, that is a feature of immigration law. And as we're going to talk about uh, something that may even become more and more important going forward. Excellent. Now, right now, you're serving as the uh, the chair uh, of the of the CBA, the Canadian Bar Association's uh, BC Immigration Subsection. Yep. And so how long, have, how long have you been serving in that capacity? I've, it's, I've done one year and I have one uh, more in your year second to go. term. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully, I mean, last, as you, you know, in 2012, uh, then Citizenship and Immigration Canada pretty much pulled out of participating in most of the local subsection uh, meetings. And hopefully we've gotten hints that that may change soon. And hopefully it does. Hmm. Yeah, that, yep, that's definitely been an interesting, uh, an interesting issue. Yeah. Now, now you've also indicated that you've, you've uh, published a column. So you've got here. Oh, yeah. So, so, um, so for some of the papers and, and, uh, other print media or, or where have you had your exposure there? The main place that I write is for a blog that I started when I first practiced and I blogged both to get a little bit of exposure but mainly it was also to learn immigration law as I was uh, practicing and as I was going and I still use it mainly uh, I don't know if you if you read the yes. blog yeah. on immigration it's mm -hmm. uh, the complaint that I get from a lot of people is that it's almost written as if a law student was studying, which is pretty much what it is. Uh, and it's supplemented. I write occasionally for the Canadian Immigrant Magazine, which is more for a wider audience. But uh, the blog certainly, it, it can come across as very technical. Well, I can tell you from, from the standpoint of immigration lawyers across the country, it has become an invaluable source of of Intel and <laughs> different pieces of information. My personal favorite that, uh, that I, I saw you share was, um, you know, some of the, the wonderful access to information, um, pieces that, uh, who's the consultant that, that is so good at pulling these out. I can't remember what his name is. Cobus Creek. That's right. He's yeah. engaged in a perennial battle with, uh, <laughs> ESDC, like non, nonstop complaints to ESDC. That is awesome. Well, I can tell you that uh, if uh, a few podcasts back, a few episodes back, Jeffrey Lowe and I spoke uh, on owner-operator labor market impact assessments, and I was just going through one of the, um, uh, you know, one of the, the access to information uh, pieces that uh, that that you guys were able to obtain. And I had to chuckle at how much was redacted from it. There was pretty much nothing left. <laughs> so. Yeah, we're going to complain to the information commissioner because we really think that there was no justification. So the question that they had redacted was, can a new company obtain an owner-operator LMIA if they haven't yet started? And it's a general policy question. Yep. And the answer is completely redacted. redacted. And I can't think of any reason why. Mm -hmm. Nope. It would be. Um, so we'll see where the complaint goes. Yeah. Well, anyways, that those kinds of things are, are awesome. So 
The question I ask every single guest that comes on the podcast is how did you get into immigration? I actually didn't plan on becoming an immigration lawyer when I was in law school. Um, I articled at Borden Ladner Gervais, a national firm in Vancouver, and at during my articles, practiced a lot of tax litigation for a lawyer who was there at the time. Now he works for DLA Piper, Max Weider. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his clients were permanent residents who were both trying to claim that they were not tax resident for tax purposes while at the same time maintaining their permanent resident status. <laughs> and the more I delved peripherally into immigration issues, the more I liked it. And I decided after articles to practice in immigration. Hmm. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have had a similar uh, pathway. <laughs> it's just kind yeah. of fell in their lap and they saw an area that was kind of interesting. They were intrigued and, and the rest is history. And I think you'd agree with me too, that of all of the different areas to practice law, um, immigration is one that provides the most satisfaction and, and really just a good feeling of, of having felt you've made a difference in people's lives. Yeah, I think it's a very, a lot of people would mistakenly think that all we do is push paper And while there is some of that, it's an area also that's constantly in the news, public policy issues always being raised. And we get to touch on big global issues in almost every case. Plus, we get exposure like in the corporate realm to a lot of the different ways businesses work. It's a great area. I agree. That's the one thing I love most about business immigration is just learning how businesses work. And when you're advocating on their behalf, trying to, uh, you know, petition the government that someone is super specialized and unique and, and, uh, you can't help but glean information from the company. And it's just, it's fascinating. You learn so much about so many different areas. And yep. so, and they say, we don't, uh, we don't worry about that. Is there a confirmation exemption code that we can neatly place them into? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so your blog Murins on immigration I'll make sure that I put a link to it within the show notes. But you indicated just peripherally that uh, it was something that you created to help you learn immigration. So did it, it started when you were in law school and then just kind of morphed into an immigration blog? Or was it immigration right from the beginning? No, it started when I first was practicing. And I had a little bit of spare time on my hands. And just as I was reading the cases thought that it would be blogging would be a good way to both get some articles online and exposure online as well as learning the law. And I continue, you know, many, many years later to view it that way. Like every case that the federal court releases provides a teaching point. And there are a lot of certified questions that get asked that reveal ongoing uncertainties in immigration law that I find particularly fascinating. So I continue to just blog about them. And then the access to information request started. And that added a whole other layer, especially, yeah, that added a whole other layer. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, in a world where, um, in theory, immigration and and the department is is supposed to be transparent, (laughs) it's amazing Um, you know, on the face of it, how much is really (laughs) just kept behind the curtain. So it's, uh, yeah, whenever anyone is able to pull some of that, uh, out and, and pull back the curtain a little bit, it's invaluable to, to practitioners. Well, so uh, yeah, it's amazing how secretive a lot of it can be like with the temporary foreign worker program and ESDC. Um, I don't think I blogged or tweeted about this, but we realized through just reading something that Cobus had sent me, Canadian Bar Association, other lawyers have been asking for the temporary foreign worker manual. For the last year, they've been saying it doesn't exist. They've said that at our conferences. Our conferences repeatedly. And then we learned through an access to information request. Like if you look at the owner operator mm-hmm. document that I uploaded, it's a wiki. Yep. So there's no manual, technically. But there's a Wikipedia, an internal Wikipedia site that they have running. So 
yes, technically there's no manual, but all of the content of the manual is just in a different form that's not a manual but a wiki. And why they wouldn't indicate that while saying technically there's no manual is beyond me. Yeah, And, and you'd think they'd want people submitting complete applications. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I really don't understand where the secrecy comes from. <laughs> Although, as it turns out, the federal court may render much of the manual or wiki to be less and less important. But um, why the department feels that they can't just publish it all, especially since it is a wiki, they could just click and make that public, is beyond me. Yeah, that is an entire uh, podcast in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. So no, that, and it, yeah. Yeah, the, there's no end to uh yeah, there's no end to the to the secrecy for sure. Now, you I also know are in the process of of releasing uh your own podcast here. So, I thought I'd give you a couple seconds, you know, to to just talk about that and and to fill us in and cuz definitely it'll be one to uh if it's anything like your blog, which I will plug is is awesome. And anyone whether you're a lawyer or or a consultant or or just an interesting, uh, interested bystander, um, you definitely want to check out um, uh, Stephen's blog. But uh, the podcast side is, is really interesting as well. So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, the podcast, it's new. We've recorded four episodes and so far uploaded two. And it's another Vancouver-based immigration lawyer and I were chatting on the phone about I can't remember what we were talking about at the time, probably just probably about secrecy, the same things we've been talking about. Yeah. And we said, wouldn't it be neat to just start recording these? And that morphed into the podcast, which is the goal is to have a guest. Me, Peter Edelman is the other lawyer mm -hmm. and uh, either have immigration lawyers or academics to discuss what I think is becoming having heard the first three, more the philosophy of immigration. The fourth guest was Jenny Kwan, who's the opposition critic, mm -hmm. uh, member of parliament for Vancouver East. So that kind of took on its own form. But generally, I think it's going to be more the philosophy of immigration and the why. And we'll see, we'll see where it goes. Um, but upcoming guests, it, it, even immigration... May more. It, we'll see where it goes. It may become philosophy of law. We have people who have agreed to appear as guests, include an academic who's been very critical about the provincial government's uh, approach to Vancouver's housing situation. To the lawyer who, I don't know if you uh, followed the case of the two individuals who as it turns out, we're, according to the B.C. Supreme Court, entrapped by the police. Yeah, I heard. To, yes, I, I uh, remember seeing to, that. Yep. So the lawyer, their lawyer is going to be on to talk about national security and some of the policy ideas behind there. So it's still in its infant stages. Um, already, I've been told that the, the first comment that Peter and I got back was no more acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> like, no more. Like we start, like, and I, I was just as bad about it as Peter was. Like I remember in the first one referring to the ability of a Canadian citizen to sponsor a relative if they don't have any parents or kids yeah. um, in Canada or spouse. And we didn't even explain what it was. We just started talking about 117.1H. <laughs> And the, the feedback was very much that needs to end if we're going to make it remotely accessible. So. Well, there is an entire language of immigration without a doubt. So I think I think that was a, a, a very innocent oversight, given the fact that to try and spell everything out in just regular conversation. Uh, well, it's, it's unworkable. So, you know, the department yeah. clearly lives and breathes by their their acronyms. So. It's, uh, yeah, that's not surprising at all, but, uh, that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. All right. Well, we have spent a lot of, uh, lead up here and I thought, you know what, let's dive in now and, and, uh, get right to the meat of our topic. And, you know, 
this podcast has a lot of practical tips and strategies and things like that for navigating the complexities of immigration. But this podcast, we're going to touch a little bit more on the legal side of immigration and in particular delve a little bit more into the wonderful world of administrative law in the context of Canadian immigration. And I think our listeners, if they recall, at the beginning here, um, one of uh, Stephen's specific focuses within his practice is assisting people who have been denied entry to Canada or those who've had their visa applications refused. And um, let's face it, challenging an officer's decision is not always an easy thing to do. And sometimes there's clear pathways, you know, with fairly well-defined appeal mechanisms. However, in many cases, the only recourse is to seek redress through uh, the federal court. So when challenging an officer's decision in federal court, um, it's administrative law principles that are often triggered. And I will put out a caveat right now that this is definitely not my area. I refer to people like Stephen. And so it's for that exact reason that I brought him in to try and help clear up a little bit uh, some of this confusion, which if it's even possible to clear up at this stage of the, uh, of the game. Um, but really, this is the core of what immigration law is all about. And so, you know, this whole concept of why it's so dang hard to challenge an officer's decision, I think it starts with the discretion that a visa officer is given. Um, can you address that a little bit for us and maybe introduce that whole concept of, of uh, this, this, this officer discretion uh, component? Yeah, so as you said, uh, immigration law is a subset of administrative law. And that's something that I think gets overlooked a fair bit including by a lot of the visa officers and especially the Canada Border Services Agency who often, and especially ESDC, who think that they're implementing policy and programs and that they're not actually administrative tribunals. So I remember once speaking with an ESDC officer and going through the regs and the officer said, well, I'm not enforcing and, and administering the immigration and refugee protection regulations, I'm administering the temporary foreign worker program. And the reality is that uh, all visa officers, port of entry officers, even CBSA summer students are, according to the law, administrative tribunals who are responsible for enforcing or administering the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act and its regulations. I'm glad you pointed that out because I was a, uh, an immigration summer student working on the border. And there was um, quite a number of shifts where I can remember I was up at the Chief Mountain border crossing, which is between uh, the Waterton uh, Glacier National Park on the U.S. Uh, uh, on the Montana side. And I was up there by myself as a summer student with a couple weeks of training. Now, there, was, there were other customs officers at the time because this, was, this predates CBSA. But yeah. um, I was making decisions on whether or not someone could come into the country. And, you know, in fairness, I had at least one year of law school under my belt. So I understood <laughs> some basic components. But I definitely hadn't reached the administrative law class, which was in year two. And, um, you know, this is also the time, 2002, when ERPO you know, was first brought into force and, you know, kind of ousted the old convoluted immigration act. And I was always amazed at the, the power that a summer student had. And yeah. so you are 100% right. They are effectively administrative tribunals. At least that's how it's been interpreted to this stage. Yeah, no, it's funny enough that it's funny that you mentioned Waterton just on a side note, I've been trying for the past two years to unsuccessfully get a backpacking permit for Glacier National Park. And my success rate at getting a hiking permit in the U.S. is a whopping 0%. Always oh, really? Fun. Yeah. I thought about that whenever I'm explaining to clients what the immigration process is like. Well, it's easier than getting a permit to hike in Montana. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so they are administrative tribunals. So because they're administrative tribunals, like a CBSA summer student, according to administrative law, is the same as a tribunal member or a board member on the Immigration and Refugee Board or a refugee adjudicator with the Refugee Appeal Division. So all these are treated as administrative tribunals and they, as such, are viewed as experts in their area who have a wide range of discretion in 
applying and interpreting the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. So what people need to realize in that are two things stem from that, I guess. The first is, as I've said, that they are afforded a lot of discretion. So the federal court uh, will say that the typically the standard of review at federal court and the standard by which the decisions of officers are assessed is reasonableness. And when you start reading the cases, you know, they'll often start with reasonableness has a wide range of possible outcomes. So in an immigration application, whether somebody say will leave Canada by the end of their authorized stay, whether there is a labor market shortage for a position, there isn't necessarily a right answer. There's only reasonable answers and unreasonable answers. And now there's exceptions for that for whether things were procedurally fair or whatnot. But there's the, the broad aspect is it's very rare that as long as a decision is reasonable, it, that's the standard. Just was it reasonable or not? Not whether the person, for example, would leave Canada by the end of the authorized stay it's not, was the officer correct in thinking that they wouldn't? It's were, was the officer reasonable? Okay, so this is where I know people who have no experience with this, they're going to say, well, what the heck is reasonable? <laughs> you know, that's as, uh, I remember in law school, that's as long as the chancellor's foot or something like that. You know, it's literally um, like who determines what is reasonable? And is there any way of, of kind of, corralling that definition and, and defining it in some way that you can say, okay, yes, this is reasonable and this isn't when you're dealing with so many different contexts. Oh, it's, it's, I don't think anybody has figured it out yet. Um, the, I mean, the most blatant way that a decision can be unreasonable is if there's a mistake of fact. Mm -hmm. So for example, we recently won well, there's a, I mean, a lot of the judicial reviews are simply based on an officer saying uh, no evidence that the person's employed. And you look at what was and submitted was. in the record and mm -hmm. you can see that it is. So you're, that's an easy enough mistake of fact. Mm -hmm. Another one that we did was a self-employed uh, applicant who, in calculating how much someone had made in Canadian dollars and doing a currency conversion from Iranian to Canadian dollars, the officer never changed the currency conversion depending on the year that the person had earned the income. So mm -hmm. mistakes of fact, that's easy enough. And you also, I think one of your most recent blogs, you just discussed, you know, in the context of reference letters. I know it's not entirely the same issue, but, uh, you know, an officer was correct or the decision was reasonable and refusing because the, the employer had just kind of lumped all the duties into one instead of separating them out into the two positions that the person had worked in. And uh, I think that's um, your, your last blog post. That was an example of where, yeah. you know, Barred that, from Canada for five years in that yeah, case for misrepresentation, something yeah. so simple. And yet all the time you can go on the entire IRCC website Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada website, and it says all over the place, you do not need to hire a, a lawyer, you don't need to hire any representative, all the forms and everything is right there for you. Well, yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, they say that and then penalize people unbelievably. Oh, yeah, the, yeah they, the they, they just crucify people, you bet. Yeah. And if it gets to, uh, and the other thing then that people need to realize, and I think this leads to the second subset of standard of review we'll just go back to standard of, well we're going to come back to standard of review when we discuss yeah yeah uh trend but so the other aspect of fettering discretion that people need to understand is that when it comes to the immigration canada website right down to their manuals that's not law and i guess one of the benefits of hiring a representative would be that they would understand that the law trumps the website. And if there's ever any inconsistencies between the website and what's written in the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, the act will trump. And just because an applicant follows the document checklist 
doesn't mean that they're addressing everything that the law requires. So, and the federal court actually, this goes both ways, like to show the other extreme that when people can't hire a, or when people, the immigration and refugee protection regulations say that all non-accompanying dependent children need a medical exam oh. unless they're in the custody of the non-accompanying, uh, of a non-accompanying ex-spouse. And that is a really harsh regulation. Oh, you have no idea, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. I but, think no, so. IRCC oh, makes people jump through hoops. Unbelievable. And every time someone tries to judicially review it, the federal court will actually say the law does not provide any exceptions. These manuals should be of no effect here. Therefore, we are maintaining and allowing the refusal because they shouldn't have even been trying. They shouldn't have even been considering exemptions in the first place. Yeah, and that's which is the pain. Yeah, it's it's yeah. crazy, and uh, you know that I think in and of itself is also a discussion that that you could have. Um, yeah, well, I've had clients that have had to go through just unbelievable hoops, including giving up custodial rights in order to land Oof. as an immigrant to Canada. And yeah. uh, I won't, um, you know, uh, obviously, uh, <laughs> Mr. Justice Diner's decision. Um, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. I won't go any further. <laughs> so, yeah, but that all stems from uh, the manual as opposed to the law. Yeah. Um, and so, well, those are just the two, the two things that people need to understand is that there is no... Visa officers aren't assessed by a right or wrong decision. It's that reasonableness spectrum. And they can't overly rely on manuals. And this is where ESDC is getting into a lot of trouble mm -hmm. because they always, like for the longest time, they, were, they weren't, I'll just say the word sophisticated because there wasn't as much litigation sent their way because if an LMO was refused, it was two weeks recruitment and it was free. Yeah. Now there's a lot more LMIA litigation and thousand dollars a pop for the, the filing yeah. fees. And if you've got large scale applications with, you know, 20, 30 people, well, that's $30,000 out the door. So yeah. mm, there's a little bit more incentive for an employer to challenge uh, negative decisions. Yeah. And a lot of uh, the decisions that are coming out are officers saying uh, they cannot treat these guidelines as law mm -hmm. um, and a lot of when you review and I mean we've all heard them on the phone we have to do this that we have to do one month recruitment you have to I have to refuse if you don't do that yeah. every time they say that it's fettering discretion yep yeah, and my personal favorite is you did not include the address in your advertisement therefore I must Oof. refuse which of Oof. course our federal court has <laughs> very carefully uh, identified as being um, reviewable error. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when you read the, the act just says they have to show there's a labor shortage. Mm -hmm. I don't know anyone that would uh, view that because an ad didn't have a business address, the employer failed to demonstrate a labor shortage. Well, there is also that other case and it hasn't, it hasn't been picked up too much yet, mainly because the Working in Canada website provides predictability. Yeah, but the, the federal court—I can't remember the name of the decision. Is that one but they out, said out east? That, in the maritime. Uh, yeah, it was a decision out east where mm -hmm. they said the reliance on the Working in Canada website is unreasonable yes. to determine prevailing wage. Yep. Um, Boy, there's a sore spot. I'll tell you for anyone who's been dealing with the temporary foreign worker program that, that this whole concept of prevailing wage has just been absolutely infuriating. Yeah. And it all, I mean, the, it all, it all stems from, in my opinion, an over-reliance on policy. Perhaps the most significant example was uh, the Supreme Court of Canada in Kanthasamy. For the past 25 years, the hardship mm -hmm. test for yep. humanitarian and compassionate struck down by the uh, Supreme Court of Canada in December because the law doesn't say... Hardship, hardship as humanitarian and compassionate compassion. and so 25 years of policy and ironically enough lower court decisions uh that hardship was the standard struck down because that's yeah. not what the act says yeah and a whole new world of compassion breathed back into the system yeah which i think really was uh, you know obviously the 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 intention in the in the very beginning 
yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, we'll see what the long-term impacts of that decision are. Um, but suffice to say that, you know, I think there's a lot of areas that are in flux right now. Hmm. Well, before we get into specifically the standard of review, because I think people need to understand how that works, um, you know, we're, we're essentially dealing uh, with a, a world where the courts, like you indicated right at the very beginning, are viewing a decision of an immigration officer or a, a, a Canada Border Service officer or, you know, an ESD, ESDC officer. They're giving them the same level of discretion in, in how they come about, uh, you know, how they arrive at their decision as they are with a formal administrative tribunal. And, uh, and so that's the kind of world that we're, we're dealing with, right? Yep. No, Exactly. All right. Well, why don't we shift now and just talk a little bit about this whole concept of, of, of the standard of review? So the standard of review is when a court is reviewing a decision of a visa officer, they will apply. There's two types. There used to be three standards. Now there's two. And they will either look at whether a decision is correct or reasonable. And traditionally, anything involving facts, whether some what it was included in an application, uh, whether somebody had testified at the Immigration Appeal Division, what recruitment an employer had done, would be reviewed on that reasonableness standard, which, as uh, Peter Edelman, you know, has said on the uh, the podcast that we run, is what is the most extreme officer's opinion, like. The reasonableness has a wide range of possible outcomes. Hmm. Um, on questions of procedural fairness, that is reviewed on correctness. So an officer either breached procedural fairness or he didn't. The third area is law. And what is the standard of review for pure questions of law? That is an area that is right now extremely unclear um and i know my position on it <laughs> i have a strong opinion on it there's a decision <laughs> that is being heard at the supreme court of canada on this very issue and i can think of before getting to that case a few cases which kind of show how important this issue is so i don't know if you have anything you want to add on well, well, I actually wanted to jump back just for a second on the procedural yeah. fairness side. And obviously we've got, we've got people that are listening to this that totally understand how this works, but there's a lot that don't. So when you're talking about, did this officer breach, you know, the provisions of whatever the uh, procedural fairness, um, yeah. was there a breach? What kind of things are we talking about within that whole concept? Like, what does it mean for something to be procedurally fair? So there's two examples that come to mind. We have one where we actually just filed the judicial review application today where the visa officer wrote to the work permit applicant and said, your employer needs to withdraw their employer compliance fee and do a new one. And then we can continue processing this application. So the employer did exactly what the visa officer requested. Three weeks later, the visa officer refused the application. And the reason for refusal was because the employer had withdrawn the fee and filed a new one. So the breach of procedural fairness there is obviously the application was refused because the employer did exactly what IRCC asked them to do. Um, the other one that's probably the most common one is if an officer relies on extrinsic evidence to refuse an application. So where that may come up is in a permanent residence application, someone has a reference letter, the immigration officer calls the person named on the reference letter, they get some other person who says, oh, I never heard of that individual, and the visa officer refuses. So the breach of procedural fairness there would be that they have, uh, and the federal court's been clear on this, a duty to inform applicants where 
the visa officer has gotten negative information from a third party source that the applicant couldn't have known about and to give the applicant an opportunity to respond. To respond. Interesting. Okay, I'll give you another example. You tell me if this fits. So an ESDC officer is adjudicating an application and uh, an employer is trying to secure an LMIA for an employee in their industry. And the officer says, "Mm, I don't think there's any shortage. In fact, I've got a friend who is out of a job in this area and uh, so I don't think there's any shortage, just so I'm going to refuse. Oh, I think that <laughs> would be totally unreasonable. <laughs> so. It would be, well, not unreasonable. It would be a breach of procedural fairness. Even if they had informed the person, the company, it would still probably border on unreasonable. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. I, think we, I, I think we get it now. I, so basically, it, it, it needs, it, there needs to be an element of fairness in the, in the decision yeah. and all that's encompassed within that. Oh, yeah. boy. All right. Um, okay. So what I want to transition to now is this case. And we've invited you on to talk a little bit about this whole area of, of administrative law and, and uh, everything flowing from challenging an officer's decision. But there's an interesting little case that's working its way through. And, and uh, you know, the, the Federal Court of Appeal decision was rendered, I think it was October, I think, of last year. And, yeah. uh, and this decision is Tran. So can you give us a little bit of background on this, a little bit of the facts to kind of set the stage? Because we're waiting for the decision. So we'll talk about kind of where things are at now, and then we'll pull you back on after the decision is rendered to talk about what the Supreme Court of Canada finally has to say about these issues. Yeah. And this will be possibly the biggest immigration decision, assuming the Supreme Court of Canada addresses the issue head on, that has come out possibly since Baker, Baker. which was the decision that Officers have to provide reasons, basically. <laughs> that <laughs> was the refusals. decision there. Um, I think you had uh, Danny Willits on your podcast. I did. And she was involved with Baker, but from the other side. Huh. And she's, it's fascinating to hear her take on Baker. I didn't know uh, that. Man, if I knew that, I would have asked yeah. her. <laughs> well, and she can talk about how the department, when she used to work at it, thought that they didn't need to provide reasons. Hmm. Wow. Uh, but anyway, so... Tran involves, so the standard of review, we talked about where a decision is unreasonable and where a decision is, um, where a decision is unreasonable and where the, there was a breach of procedural fairness. The third area is where, how do you interpret the law? What is the law? Does are there multiple interpretations of the law? So perhaps summarizing the facts in Tran and its implications on a few other areas would convey this better than I am right now. So in Tran, a, the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act provides that a permanent resident is inadmissible to Canada and can be deported if they committed a serious crime in Canada. And the permanent resident will have a right of appeal to the Immigration Appeal Division unless they received a sentence of six months or more. So the question in Tran was, is a conditional sentence, which means a sentence not in prison, but one where you're kind of serving the sentence in the community. Community service kind of. mm -hmm. Yeah, community service and whatnot. A sentence such that a someone doesn't have an appeal to the Immigration Appeal Division. And the federal court said that it was not and that a conditional sentence does not count. And that the immigrant... So let me just backtrack. The Immigration Appeal Division said that a conditional sentence was a term of imprisonment and as such, it could not hear the appeal. The federal court disagreed and said that... It was unreasonable to interpret the law that way. The Federal Court of Appeal then came out with this decision that based on other Supreme Court of Canada decisions on how 
what the standard of review should be for questions of law, that it would be both reasonable for the Immigration Appeal Division to determine that a conditional sentence was a term of imprisonment, and it would be reasonable for the Immigration Appeal Division to determine that it was not. So it would be completely up to the individual tribunal to determine what the, what law, the law was. was. You know, and that is uh, the implication is crazy. Yeah, it's it's just it's infinite. Uh, you know, it's interesting. When I think about the facts of this case and. So often these facts drive the situation. So here we have bad boy, Mr. Tran, who's been a permanent resident for a long time. And he just happens to have a little grow up in his, in his, in his residence, or I don't know the entire facts, but basically he's, he's got this marijuana cultivation operation and he receives this 12 month conditional sentence. And so, and so this is the issue. So what is the difference between somebody who receives community service versus someone who actually is in jail? And, uh, and how do you treat that? And you treat them the yeah. same regardless. And, and, and so the court is saying from what you've explained here that, uh, essentially, uh, an officer can decide whatever they want. We're not going to challenge it. <laughs> and it's completely then who you get. They don't have to provide a reason for which tests they're applying I don't do that much immigration appeal division work, but from what I understand at the board, some counsel have been trying to get at the outset the tribunal member to say which test they're going to use. And in some cases, the tribunal members have said they're going to wait to hear all the facts and then determine which test they use, which is problematic. But if this, if, if the Supreme, like this question basically comes, is, do we want a system where officers can determine different tests and it solely depends on which officer? So we saw this with citizenship, with the coal, you know, before the current, the previous government, Bill C-24, the Citizenship Act didn't define residents. So some officers would say that people had to be physically, physically present, present in Canada. Oh. Others defined residents as ties and whatnot. And you had this weird world where both were acceptable. The federal court didn't know what to do with it because there were decisions going every which way. And eventually it was kind of, okay, this is an abomination. We really hope that someone does otherwise. But since there's no right of appeal to the federal court of appeal to get a definitive answer, individual citizenship judges can choose their test. And I think most people agreed that that was incredibly problematic. But that could be the case across every area of immigration law, depending on the outcome in Tran. And so, like in the labor market impact assessment, you could have an officer who could potentially say, well, I think a labor shortage means six weeks of recruitment, not four and everybody can start coming out with their own tests. And I just don't understand why we would go in that direction. Yeah, and I I understand from a very high 10,000 foot level that, you know, these officers have to make tough decisions and they need to have the freedom to be able to make those decisions so that the system can be workable. You know, yeah. so that you're not going to have a situation where every time an officer makes a decision that you can easily appeal to, you know, to the court and get it overturned or, and so, you know, for that very fact, there was deference, you know, granted to these various decision makers. But the issue I have is when they don't have a freaking clue what they're doing yeah, <laughs> and they don't or even understand like- the law, you know, I, I think, you know, now when, when I worked on the border, there was just, I was an immigration officer. I didn't do search, seizure, custom, you know, traffic. I didn't do any of those things. But now these border service officers have to know a little bit about everything. And whenever you have to know a little bit about everything, well, then maybe you have some officers that like a particular area and spend the time to become more knowledgeable. But really, they, they just, they don't understand. And so you've got a summer student who's interpreting law now. <laughs> yeah, and uh, will be given deference. Mm-hmm. Like it's, and as to not even interpreting law, getting to decide how they want to interpret it and get, being given, as long as the interpretation is reasonable, uh, a huge way, range of discretion in what the law itself actually is. Yeah. 
And uh, so I was thinking about like my own, like I did a case last year, Gupta, mm -hmm. where the person was a Saskatchewan provincial nominee, had a work permit to work at a restaurant in Saskatchewan, was driving up from a trip to Blaine to Vancouver. And they determined at the port of entry that he was going to work for a restaurant in Vancouver, not Saskatchewan. So they issued him an exclusion order for entering Canada to work without a work permit. And we won on the judicial review by arguing, and the judge said, well, that's not how that law reads. He clearly had a work permit. He was just going to work in contravention of it, which is a whole different thing. If Tran gives visa or well, gives all officers mm -hmm. this huge range of discretion, it would totally have depended on who the officer was. Some officers could have said, yes, that will result in an exclusion order to work entering to Canada to work without a work permit. I don't know, implies that you're working for the employer listed on the work permit. Another officer could say, no, you know what? That's not what the law says. We'll let you in. And this idea that there could be multiple interpretations, all of which are reasonable, would just throw such uncertainty, I think, into the system. Um, I think it's very problematic. Yeah, that's a complete that's a complete understatement. And yeah. as as I'm listening to you talk here, I'm thinking to myself, boy, I hope no border service officers are listening to this podcast because <laughs> yeah. they're gonna they're gonna understand right now that there's a good chance that they can pretty much decide whatever they want without any um yeah with with without any serious uh, ability to overturn their decisions <laughs> so yep. well and it's also funny that like the law and this isn't really but i mean i think this is all part of what is going to be raised in tran is that the courts will give as much deference to the supervisor at a port of entry as to the summer student. Like, they won't differentiate between the two. Right. Um, arguably, the summer student would be fettering his or her discretion by seeking advice from his supervisor. Huh. I hadn't thought of that. It's, uh, Especially yeah, no if they're given full authority, the delegated authority to make a decision. You're right. I hadn't really yeah. even thought of that. Yeah. Oh, I've uh, now it ultimately settled, but I was getting ready to argue that at ESDC, the use of business expertise consultants is directing officers to refuse or approve mm -hmm. is in itself a whole breach of or a fettering discretion. Huh. This is fascinating. Okay. So... We've got this this Tran decision in the Federal Court of Appeal. Um, what what is the uh, like, what's the process now? So so the decision was rendered in in, in October, and and I think yeah. Pe Peter's on on this one. So Peter's on it. It's uh, I think so where's it's it at? January. I was talking to Peter yesterday, and I think his materials were due or are due this week. And uh, he is, the hearing is in January. Um, and then who knows when the decision will come out. Hmm. Well, we're definitely going to have to, to come back and, and see what the actual results are. But in the interim, what do you think? What, what, do, you, what do you think? The direction, and it's a, this is good because we'll get you back on and see how close you were. What do you think the Supreme Court of Canada is going to do with this? Are they going to sidestep it and just do sometimes what they do and avoid the difficult question? Or, you know, or I think they would. The Supreme Court would have to make an exception from how they've been ruling in other areas of the law for immigration, and I have a hard time seeing them doing that. They may sidestep the issue, but I don't know. I have a bad feeling. <laughs> <laughs> you think, I we're, think feeling. We're, we're in for a crazy world? <laughs> yeah, I have a... I have, and it may be that the department... I mean, the legislature can act yeah. to rein it in by right. saying that the standard of review is, yeah. is you know X or Y, and that may be what they have to do. And sometimes the courts do that. Uh, just to force the hand practically beg the legislature to, yeah, to make a change interfere 
Um, and they kind of hinted at that in Tran, like that's something like they hinted initially by saying, because the federal court deals with immigration all the time and the Supreme Court doesn't. So initially when the federal court was, or the Supreme Court started hinting that it was taking the standard of review this way, some of the, the federal court of appeal decisions a couple of years ago were saying, well, we can't imagine this is what the Supreme Court wanted <laughs> once. So until they explicitly say otherwise, this is... We'll keep turning out these crazy going. decisions. And that's that's kind of what... Yeah. If I just, uh, I'm going to try to pull Tran up quickly. I think Tran, the federal court of appeal, almost hinted the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I have, uh, I mean, I really hope that they don't go that way, but... <laughs> It's uh, think, it would take it would take an incredible set of arguments from Peter to. Uh, <laughs> well, I think it's it's, I'll, it's, I'll it's Madam, Madam Justice Goche. Is that is it Goche? Is she the the? Is she the, yeah, it was the Madam uh, Madam Justice Goche who rendered the decision. And I think I've got a little quote here. Uh, where she issues a plea for for clarity, and this came from uh, this came from the Paul Daly blog, yeah. Administrative Law Matters, and he he quotes her, and it reads: "In cases like this, where it is not evident that only one interpretation is defensible, it is quite difficult to do what the Supreme Court of Canada mandates us to do, given the number of interpretive presumptions and principles that can be considered and applied." Some further guidance would certainly be welcomed in that yep. respect, especially when the relative weight to be given to competing presumptions and interpretive tools has never been clearly dealt with by the Supreme Court of Canada. And I think she could add in there the, the significant consequences to people's lives as a result oh. of, of this, uh, uh, you know, this lack of clarity. And so I love how the, how, how the justices word that. Um, yeah, certainly be welcomed. <laughs> Yeah, you know what else is uh, interesting when you get into Tran, just as I know you're uh, involved with the Canadian Bar Association. Mm-hmm. Peter tried to, at the Federal Court of Appeal, he had argued that it was, uh, it couldn't have been Parliament's intention that a conditional sentence would be a sentence when they drafted that law. Mm-hmm. And the Department of Justice uh, Council, um, was able to point to CBA submissions that <laughs> no. the Canadian Bar Association had provided where they specifically warned and said, this needs to be clarified or else it would seem that a conditional sentence would be a term of imprisonment. <laughs> no. And uh, Benafia Department of Justice argued, well, Parla- and the Federal Court of Appeal agreed, Parliament therefore must have intended it because we can assume that they read the CBA submission. <laughs> I don't suppose Peter was involved in drafting that, was he? Peter was beside himself. Yeah, he was involved in drafting it, and he was beside himself. Because oh, that's it's dirty It's far more pool. likely that, uh, unfortunately, given uh, recent history, that the submissions just weren't not that even looked at read by the previous. Yeah, company. not even looked at. So, <laughs> wow, that is interesting. Well, this this whole concept of of. Uh, you know, this whole standard of review and the deference that, that that's given to these officers, their vast discretion, the the real uh, desire of the courts to not want to overturn officer decisions is is creating some pretty significant issues for us as immigration lawyers. And and uh, it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens with Trent. I hope that they're bold enough to to correct this and to deal with it instead of allowing this issue to continue to languish. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I, I hope so too. Thank you so much, uh, Stephen, for coming on the podcast. This was this was a lot of fun. This was great, and I know the the other immigration lawyers, um, the consultants who are who are following this, um, are going to learn a little bit more about a case that's working its way through the uh, through the system that is going to have a tremendous potential to impla- impact um, really the lives of our clients in the future. So thanks yeah. so much for coming on the podcast. We're definitely going to have to get you to come back on once the, you know, the decision is rendered. And um, in the interim, because 
you know, uh, obviously I do not practice in this area and I would never, <laughs> I would never want people calling me, Hey Mark, can you help me with my appeal here? Or I need to uh, judicially review this uh, d- officer's decision. Um, I ain't going to touch those things with a 10 foot pole right now. I would, uh, I would love to direct them to you. And the easiest way to do that is for you to tell me how they can reach you. Oh, I can be reached. Uh, probably easiest is by email, which is Stephen with a V. So S T E V E N dot M E U R R E N S at Larley L A R L E E dot com. Perfect. Okay, we'll we'll do as well. I'll make sure I get that email in the show notes, and I'll put a link back to your firm uh, website so people can read up on you and see all the cool things that you're doing. And I'll put a link to the blog post, Murins on Immigration. And last but not least, we'll put a link to your podcast. And uh, so once again, I want to express appreciation, Stephen, for you coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much. Yeah, this was fun. All right. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was a great interview with Stephen Murens. I really appreciate the time that he took to come on the podcast and share some great insight with us. You know, this whole area that we've been talking about today in this podcast is one I think that many immigration lawyers are just simply not aware of. You know, this decision of Tran that is working its way through the court system is one that we need to really pay attention to. And in a world where officers have more and more power given them to make decisions over the lives of people and fewer and fewer ways in which to check that um, that power or to challenge it if it's just being exercised in a manner that's you know that's just unfair or there's being errors in law um, we as immigration lawyers need to really pay attention to this and I'd be very curious to see how um, how Peter Edelman works out uh, at the Supreme Court of Canada with his, this case that he's bringing forward of, of Tran and um, it'll be great to have Stephen come back on the podcast and share his thoughts. And maybe we can even get Peter to come on, uh, Peter Edelman as well, to come on and, and share his thoughts after he's gone through um, what's going to be a very seminal case in immigration law. At least as long as the, the courts don't uh, kind of sidestep the main issue that we're trying to, uh, to get them to, to provide some clarity on. Well, I want to express appreciation to all of you for listening once again to the podcast. Make sure that you go to iTunes and rate it and, uh, you know, leave, leave a comment. If it, if you feel like the podcast sucks, then, then please, please tell me because, uh, any, any feedback that I can get is good feedback and it helps me to know if this is something that's worth pursuing and continuing. Um, at this stage, it's, it's just been a lot of fun. I've loved it. And in all honesty, if I could do this all day versus filling in uh, labor market impact assessment forms, I would be all over it. I'm sure many other lawyers are feeling the same way in this crazy world of immigration that we're dealing with. But yeah, go ahead and uh, see if you can go to iTunes and, and subscribe. Uh, leave a review. The The better the reviews, or the more the reviews anyways, the higher the, the ranking and the more accessible it is to others who may be interested in the podcast. Uh, share it with others. If you have any ideas for uh, topics or speakers in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. But um yeah, this is an interesting episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Uh, very appreciative of, of Stephen Murens, and and please go check out his blog and and check out his uh, his firm. They do a fantastic job there out in Vancouver, and uh, they're very um, very well respected law firm, and uh, one that I would have no qualms whatsoever in referring my clients to. All right. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. And I'm your host, Mark Holthy, signing off, wishing you all the best as you navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com.
Canadian Immigration 